From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Injured veterans can spend years searching for relief from chronic pain. Today in our series On Pain, a veteran and his wife share their journey of frustration. We don't, I think, have enough time to go through all the different therapies that I tried. And of hope. It was like a huge weight lifted off of our shoulders. We'll hear about an old drug being used in new ways. Then, an indigenous girl in Mexico who became a slave, then a legend, unpacking the story of La Malinche. We actually know very little about this woman who has sort of entranced us for 500 years. At the Denver Art Museum, a new show connects La Malinche and the Chicano movement in Colorado. People say, this is the first time I see myself in the gallery. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We pick up our series on pain today with the story of a veteran who found a promising therapy. Jacob was injured during an army training exercise. We're not using his last name to protect his family's privacy. He tried all sorts of things to relieve his chronic pain, including opioids. Then, two years ago, he connected with Dr. Joseph Frank, a pain management physician at the VA. Jacob and his wife Meredith live near Colorado Springs. Dr. Frank is based in Metro Denver. They spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis, and we should note the conversation touches on suicide. Jacob, how were you first injured? I was injured in the early 2000s in a training accident. I was the base of a human pyramid. I had a heavy person step in the middle of my back in the wrong place and then heard pop and it just became worse from there after the years of jumping out of airplanes, just doing the stuff we do in the army. And what are some of the therapies you tried? We don't, I don't think have enough time to go through all the different therapies that I tried. I, I, I mean, I went through all types of physical therapy to strengthen this or that, shots, it was just a really long road. It's, it's, there's just so many. It's difficult to remember all of them. And you also used opioids to manage pain. I did. And they gave you some relief. They were somewhat helpful, but they just matched the pain. It was still there. It didn't take it away. And Meredith, you've been with Jacob all along through his struggles with pain. Talk about your efforts to help and uh, some of the therapies that you tried. Um, I just know that we, every time we saw a new doctor, we asked for something new. We would say we don't want to be on these medications with so many side effects. Um, There must be something you have to offer us. You know, all, all the medications, all the therapies, shots, we put in an electronic stimulator and had it revised half a dozen times. So those were all fairly invasive surgical procedures and nothing had a lasting effect. 
and the opioids, you know, it, they're addictive and you want to say that they're helping and you want to say it's a therapeutic addiction that you have to take them to, you know, be up and around, but the side effects are debilitating. And it took a part of Jacob away from us for more than a decade. What do you mean by that? He was just not, he was not himself. He wasn't totally here with us. You know, the opioids have kind of a a blunting effect on, I think, him thinking clearly, his motivation, just his zest for life. So that was sad for the parts of him that I fell in love with and the parts of him that his kids love weren't here all the time. Jacob, I know the pain got so bad at a certain point that you felt like giving up, that life wasn't worth it. What was that breaking point? Realizing that this is something I was going to have to do another 30 or 40 or 50 years. And it wasn't helpful enough. The opioids weren't helpful enough to keep that out of my mind. Going to the doctor, being scrutinized, being looked at like I was some type of an addict who was taking these medications just because they wanted to, because it was great and it was a lot of fun to go to the doctor. And just in general, how people look at you, how you're treated, like you're some type of a criminal. And and I was at the point where I was trying to think about who was more selfish. My family, my friends were wanting me to stay around and be this amount of pain for an unknown period of time. Or was it me being more selfish because I just was done? I just wanted to end my life and be done. And I could never figure that out. So I didn't in my life. Do you think the painkillers, the opioids added to that depression and those feelings of desperation? I can't answer that. I don't know. I think the process probably contributed to it. The process of trying different medications, not knowing if it would work or not work. The process of receiving, you know, very short prescriptions, having to see the doctor very frequently, having to be drug tested, having to visit the pharmacy all the time, the pharmacy maybe having or not having the medication, the medication not being here on time and going into withdrawal. That's all a very stressful, depressing process. And we should say when people take opioids um, for a long period of time, they have to be tested, drug tested. And Dr. Frank, I'm going to bring you in here. How did you first connect with Jacob? So I work in a pain management team at the VA, and we received uh, a referral to reach out and schedule a meeting and had a chance to meet and hear this story and look for ways that our team could help. And you use multiple therapies with your patients, but we're going to focus now on what's helped Jacob specifically. It's a therapy that might be surprising for people, maybe even a bit controversial. Tell us about buprenorphine. Certainly. Buprenorphine is a medication. It's a medication that's been around a long time, and its most common use for the last 20 years has been in the treatment of opioid addiction. Um, And we also know it's an effective pain medication. It's not often widely available and and often not communicated or or provided as part of pain management education. So many people living with chronic pain are not aware that it might be an option for them. Could this be seen as trading one drug dependence for another? Well, I think if you describe it as possibly controversial, that may be 
what some critics would say, I think importantly, it's different for each person. And it's a question of, does it help uh, the person improve their quality of life, do more of what's important to them? And in that case, that's really the goal of any treatment option. And so if, if a medication is a treatment that can help a person live better, I think that's that's our team's focus. And medication should just be one tool in the toolkit. In this case, uh, we're making a medication change, but with goals of helping people live better. How often have you seen it help? That's a good question. It's different for each person. Um, I think it uh, is helpful much of the time. I would say probably at least half the time for the patients that we work with, they find that pain management is improved. Other important experiences like feeling fatigued, feeling cloudy, not sleeping well, those things can improve as well. But importantly, it's different for everybody. So there's some people who find that it's a medication worth trying, but isn't a good long-term fit. And Jacob, you started using buprenorphine a couple of years ago, I understand. What changes did you notice? I feel like I came back to life. My memory became a little more sharp. And a lot of the things I used to enjoy doing that I didn't do while I was taking all the different types of opioids, I was motivated to do those again, you know, being extremely physically active. And my pain, it improved. And Meredith, what did you notice? It was like a huge weight lifted off of our shoulders, I think. Um, he was able to get up in the morning and face the day. He was able to contribute to the family and the household. He wanted to be physically fit, so much so that he lost more than 50 pounds. He was able to reduce a number of his other medications, some mental health drugs that are notorious for being difficult to reduce. He was able to get off of completely. I think his depression and anxiety have become more manageable. It's been really awesome. <laughs> and Dr. Frank, what are the studies that back up using buprenorphine therapy for pain? Well, there are a number of studies that have looked specifically at the medication change from other opioid medications long-term for chronic pain and the switch to buprenorphine. And, and most of those studies show improvements in pain with improvements in other symptoms and side effects. We have more work to do to better understand how to communicate this to individual patients, help people understand what to expect, because it is different for everybody. But the studies that we have so far certainly suggest we should be introducing this as an option. Have you noticed certain kinds of patients that are helped most by this therapy? I haven't noticed specific patients so much as specific treatment plans. And so when we introduce this therapy as part of a plan that involves active treatments, maybe other medication changes, maybe other psychological therapies, that's when we find this medication can make the most important difference across a range of different experiences like pain, like energy, like attention, all, all the important things that affect how people go through their day. So when it's part of a a plan and a person is able to um, connect with multiple treatments working together with buprenorphine as a key piece, that's when we find it's most helpful. What are the side effects? Common side effects are some that people may have experienced with other opioid medications. Some people can uh, experience some constipation. That's a pretty common concern with other opioid medications. But I think importantly, if, if I'm answering that question for a person currently taking another opioid medication, I'm going to compare them side by side and say the side effects are usually much better. Um, compared to the prior medication. 
those side effects tend to improve along with improved pain management. And that's where people can really make important changes. And how would you describe buprenorphine compared to the traditional opioids that we talk about? What kind of a drug is it and how is it different from those? Well, it is. it works at the opioid receptor in people's bodies. And so in that way, it is a, a kind of opioid medication. Um, sometimes we describe it in ways that can be unhelpful or a little bit confusing. We might call it a, a partial opioid medication. I tend to focus on what the goals of the medication change are uh, when I'm comparing it to other opioid medications to say that it has the goals of improving pain management, improving other side effects. And then very importantly, it is safer than those medications when it comes to the chances of important harms such as changes in breathing. Dr. Frank, we're doing a series on pain, and I worry sometimes in these stories that people will see certain therapies as a panacea. In this case, it would be the use of buprenorphine. Do you have any concerns about that? I think that's a a fair concern for all the treatments we currently have available for pain management. Most of the treatments we have work a little bit for most people. And it's a a challenge then of asking people and their families to put it all together and keep a plan moving over time. Uh, But that's especially true of buprenorphine. I think an important note is that this can be an incredibly helpful treatment change for some people. And for others, it's not going to be a good long-term fit and everywhere in between. You use lots of therapies in your clinic. Can you talk about some of the others you've found helpful to patients that people might not be as familiar with? Certainly. Um, They may not be as familiar with because oftentimes they're not as widely available as they need to be. The VA can be a good place to practice pain management because I'm able to work alongside a team of psychologists and pharmacists and nurses and health coaches. Um, And so that means we're able to bring what we would call non-medication or behavioral strategies. That can be psychological therapies for pain, adjusting and changing other medications, working as part of groups, which can be a really powerful tool in VA to connect with other people, in this case, other veterans going through something similar. If we're doing our job well, we're helping people to understand what the options are and then tailoring those options to that person's unique situation and goals. Meredith, now that Jacob has found relief, what's changed for you? I can sleep at night. (laughs) I worry much less. Our never-ending quest for less pain is maybe reached, maybe not the end of the road, but a stopping point or a place to rest at any rate. I have my husband back, which I very much appreciate. We waited a long time for that and we didn't give up. Jacob, what would you tell other people who have experienced the pain that you have over the years? I really, the only thing I can say is to kind of piggyback off Dr. Frank because it's different for each and every person. I would tell everybody to not give up, but I'm not, I'm not in their shoes. I can only empathize what type of situation they're possibly in and ask them not to give up because there are options out there. You just have to look, you have to keep searching and you have to have that hope that something is going to work. After 10, more than 10 years of doing this and trying different things, we were pretty hopeless and had never even heard, heard the word buprenorphine, knew that that was something that existed. And for Dr. Frank to mention that and, it fall into our lap as something to try. 
and us being very nervous about trying it and still making the transition, we are thrilled with the outcome. Meredith, thanks so much for joining us. And Jacob, you too. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. And Dr. Frank, thank you. Thank you very much. Jacob and Meredith live near Colorado Springs. We're not using their last name to protect their privacy. Dr. Joseph Frank heads a team at the Rocky Mountain Regional VA Medical Center for veterans experiencing chronic pain. They spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis as part of our series on pain. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide, reach out to Colorado Crisis Services. The hotline is free and professional. Text TALK to 38255. That's TALK to 38255. And to emphasize, buprenorphine to manage pain is typically recommended for people like Jacob who have previously taken opioid medications. But Dr. Frank says there are also forms of the drug for pain management that may be appropriate for people who haven't been treated with opioids. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I look at him like a shooting star. Jim Belushi talks about his brother John and overcoming loss on a new episode of Back From Broken. When you see a shooting star, you go, and then it's gone. It's like magic, right? I look at John as that shooting star. Listen to Back From Broken, a show about recovery, wherever you get your podcasts. With support from Lift the Label. Families in Commerce City nervously await a decision today that'll determine the fate of their schools. The state might reorganize the Adams 14 district, possibly closing the high school. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine says parents have their own ideas about what should happen, but feel ignored. Mauricio Vargas works construction. He's helping build a new tower on the Anschutz Medical Campus. The other day, he looked at the building and imagined his daughter working there as a doctor. And how my mama put the rags to use. Recuerdo una caja de retazos que alguien nos regaló. His daughter, Setlali, is only six, but she's wanted to be a doctor since she was a toddler. Vargas's wife, Elizabeth Rivas, wonders if that can become a reality where they live in Commerce City. She says she wants her children to have every opportunity. It's not right that because they live in Commerce City, a poor community, they're limited. She says every child deserves every opportunity, whether it's in Commerce City or Cherry Creek or Boulder. On Thursday, the State Board of Education will hear evidence and decide the district's fate. Among the options, close some schools, hire an outside manager for the district, or even dissolve the district. Adams 14 has received failing ratings for more than a decade. The vast majority of its students live in poverty. It has the highest percentage of English language learners in the state. The district became the first ordered by the state to be run by an outside manager. That didn't work out. Parent Maria Estrada says it's been years since she's seen academic progress in the district. Por ejemplo, el que va en segundo grado no le dan tutorías, no le dan apoyo. Y él es un niño que va de 
Es de lento aprendizaje. She says she's asked for more support for her seven-year-old son because he's a slow learner. But the school says there's no extra tutoring. It worries her. So does the turmoil at the high school. An outside review panel recommended closing the district's only comprehensive high school and reorganizing the district. Me dice, mamá, dice, ¿para qué vamos a la escuela si los maestros nos dicen Estrada says her daughter asked her, why go to school if the teacher just tells her class to work on the computer and turn in assignments without explaining anything? That frustrates Estrada so much that she's enrolled her daughter in a Denver high school for next year. But she's not sure that she supports closing the high school. She says it's going to affect lots of families, many who can't drive to other schools. Her daughter Eileen, a freshman, says the recommendation to close the schools hit kids hard emotionally. When, like, the news got out, like, students were freaking out. You know, the teachers were trying to calm them down as possible, that if the school, like, shuts down, they're going to make sure that every student in the school, they're just not going to leave them by, by themselves with no support. Pueden tener una buena educación en nuestras escuelas. What Estrada and others at this packed meeting at a church asked for was that the locally elected school board and the new superintendent, who has experience turning around schools, be given a chance to do so. They'd also like the chance to turn the district's central elementary school, also on the state's watch list, into a community school. That's a school that has a lot of social services that families can access in addition to academics. Elizabeth Rivas wants the state to listen to what the community wants. El Estado no está pensando bien en, en la resolución para nosotros, para la, nuestra comunidad. She says the state isn't trying hard enough to find a solution for the community. Instead of helping, it's harming. Schools are public, she says, made for communities. She says the board can't make a decision just because they believe it's best without taking into account parents and students. De que nuestros hijos son niños brillantes, pero son diferentes. O sea, todos los niños son She diferentes. says our children are brilliant. All children are different, she says, and the state needs to see that and try to understand the types of programs the children of Commerce City need. In short, she says, state tests don't reflect everything our children know. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. There is now a sculpture of Denver's first black mayor, Wellington Webb. It was unveiled this month. Webb began the job in 1991. A foundation headed by his wife commissioned the bronze likeness, which is at the Webb Municipal Building downtown. At the unveiling, Webb talked about his journey to the city's top office. I was a skinny kid in school. I was the one that has asthma so bad I couldn't walk around a block. And my family moved here from Chicago. We moved to Denver. He says he stayed in school because he was afraid of what his grandmother would do to him if he dropped out and because he wanted to play basketball. He did that in Sterling, Colorado, on the Plains. Met a basketball coach there named Roy Edwards, who became like a surrogate dad. Gave me the opportunity to blossom from boy to man. Gave me the opportunity to be something As my grandmother says, anybody can be common. You want to be special. You want to be common. You want to be more than that. 
He says later his grandmother inspired him to get into politics. He credits another woman, his wife Wilma, for helping him get to the mayor's office. At the statue unveiling, Wellington Webb told a story about sitting at Red Rocks with Wilma, looking down on the city, and telling her one day he'd be mayor, which of course became true. Now, in semi-retirement, Webb says he's focused on five things, many of them a continuation of the issues he cared about as mayor. Some of them are local, like Denver Public Schools and property tax rates. Another is global. In his speech, he implored Colorado's congressional delegation to put more focus on the African continent. If they would just give 2% of the time to Africa that they have spent on Ukraine. I wear a Ukraine button because I think what the Russians have done is horrible. But if you look at it, why did Eritrea vote with the Russians at the United Nations on the Security Council? Because they get guns from Russia. We're abdicating the whole 56 countries in Africa to the Chinese and to the Russians. I just want to see somebody give a damn about Africa, and especially Ethiopia. It is not difficult. It is not difficult to build with United Nations peacekeepers or other countries to build the petition to separate and allow the people in Tigray the province in Ethiopia to get to the river for the humanitarian aid that they're not receiving. All they want to do is they want food and water and to be left alone. And we should be able to do that. Former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb. He spoke at a dedication last week of a new statue of himself. It's at the municipal office building named for him. By the way, the sculptor is Ed Dwight, a trailblazer in his own right. Before becoming a renowned artist, Dwight was the first black astronaut trainee with NASA in 1961. Dwight is in his late 80s now, living in Denver. You can hear our conversations with him over the years at CPR.org. And we'll be back shortly with new insight into a woman who's been called both an icon and a traitor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Inspired by Booker T. Washington's Back to the Land movement, which aimed to give African Americans property ownership and self-sufficiency, O.T. Jackson founded a self-sustaining black settlement 30 miles east of Greeley in 1910. People who saw the potential headed to the prairie, built homes, farms, and churches, a school, a restaurant, and a cement factory. The land was dear to them, so they named the settlement Deerfield. Minerva Jackson ran the thriving town. Picnics, fishing parties, and dancing enlivened Deerfield. Land value increased astronomically over a decade. But two decades after its founding, the community collapsed under repeated droughts, the Dust Bowl, and the Great Depression. Today, it's a ghost town, but there are efforts to make Deerfield a part of the national park system to help tell the story of America's black experience. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. The thing about legends is they often go far beyond the original true story. And that is the case for an indigenous girl in Mexico known as La Malinche. 
Around 500 years ago, she was made a slave, forced to interpret for the Spanish forces invading her homeland. She also became a glossy symbol of post-colonial Mexico, and later a figure in the Chicano movement. Oh, and a scapegoat. Well, a new show at the Denver Art Museum aims to recast her story. It's called Traitor, Survivor, Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche. Co-curator Victoria Lyall gave me a tour, and if it sounds a bit like I'm whispering, it's because museum visitors milled about as we spoke. Victoria, thank you for meeting us here. It's my pleasure. The title of this show is Traitor, Survivor, Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche. Traitor and Survivor and Icon, it's like a lot of baggage to load onto one human being. So why don't we start with the in-real-life bio. In short, who was La Malinche? So La Malinche was a young girl, somewhere between the ages of 11 and 16, who was sold into slavery at a very young age and found herself thrust into the center of this cataclysmic series of events. She becomes a historical protagonist of this narrative that we have come to know as the Spanish conquest of Mexico. She served as the translator, the indigenous translator, for Cortez and his expedition. Hernán Cortez. Hernán Cortez, yeah, along with the indigenous nobility. So she spoke at least three indigenous languages in addition to Spanish. And where shall we place her geographically? Let's get specific about where this is unfolding. Well, one thing you need to keep in mind is that we actually know very little about this woman who has sort of entranced us for 500 years. The little that we do know is that she was born in the region that we now know as Veracruz, in an area of Coatzacoalcos. She was snatched from her family while she was still very young, and she grew up among the Chontal Maya. And clearly had a penchant for language. Yes. Clearly had, well, talents that I suppose were exploited. She was extraordinary. She was an intelligent girl who knew how to survive. But in some ways, she's also representative of that moment. We think of it monolithically as the Aztec Empire, where Nahuatl was spoken everywhere. But the truth is, there were hundreds of indigenous communities. Many of them spoke their own languages. So most indigenous people were multilingual. Mm-hmm. And so she's exceptional, but it's also important to put that exceptionalism into some context. Now, when you walk into the show, as we have done, a glimmering map greets us of Mexico. Yes. Tell us why this is one of the first and most arresting images when you visit the show about La Malinche. So this map is made up of two pieces of brown amate paper, which is actually a sacred ceremonial paper made of mulberry bark. The artist, Sandy Rodriguez, grew up in national city in Tijuana, and she currently lives in L.A., she's what we call a contemporary Tlacuila. So she has revived through her practice the ancient map making of Nahuatl Tlacuilos, where the two-dimensional map really layers time, history, 
space, and identity. So what you see in front of you is a map of Mexico, including parts of Central America, right? Goes into Guatemala and El Salvador. And then a shimmering gold coast as a line. Yes, and it includes the southern uh, U.S.-Mexico border as well. Right, We see parts of Texas and a little bit even of maybe Louisiana. The shimmering gold that lines the western side of Mexico, the Pacific coast, is a reference to Hernán Cortés's descriptions of the gold sickness that afflict the Spanish. He writes of it in his correspondence to the king of Spain. What is gold sickness? It is this greed their need for gold. The colonial hunger for gold. And this is a colonial story. What is the connection, if you could say more about it, between La Malinche and Cortez himself? So when Malinche is gifted, along with 19 other women, by the Chontalmaya to the Spanish expedition, these women are distributed among the Spanish captains. In fact, she's not given to Cortes, she's given to a man named Puerto Carrero, who is a noble. What unfolds is that Malinche is apparently fluent in Nahuatl. They already had a Maya translator, and it seems that Malinche learned Spanish in about three months and becomes the preferred translator. Cortes and Malinche become so identified one with the other that, in fact, the indigenous communities refer to Cortes as Mr. Malinche. As Mr. Malinche? Yes. And how would you, if you were going to use contemporary figures, a contemporary couple, for instance, as an example, who would they have been like? I can't, I mean, this is the extreme... Is it Adam and Eve? Is it... Well... We see how that emerges in the section dedicated to Mestizaje, how Malinche and Cortez emerge as the Mexican Adam and Eve. But I don't think that there is a contemporary parallel. It's too much of a creepy May-December romance, Mm -hmm. you know. Age difference, power difference. Totally. And that's one of the things that we really try to underscore in the exhibition itself. We use the word girl and Mm. not woman. Mm -hmm. Woman implies sexual maturity and age and agency, neither of which she had. The other thing to remember is that she was enslaved, right? So that is also a power dynamic that has often been forgotten when people talk about her. And in fact, that's what Sandy connected with. The artist of this map. Yeah, in, in the map, we see the journey of Malinche. Often when we talk about the Spanish conquest, Mm. it's illustrated with a map of the route of Cortez, where he landed, where he traveled, all the different spots. Cortez-centric. Exactly, and Sandy was like, no. Let's turn this on its head and let's make a journey of Malinche's life. She dies before the age of 30. Oh my goodness. And Sandy said, you know, Malinche was a trafficked girl. So if you notice along the map, mostly around the U.S.-Mexico border, there are 19 handprints picked out in cochineal, which is a brilliant red dye made by crushing scale insects. These handprints represent 
19 Indigenous women that were kidnapped or assassinated in the year 2021. Because this is a very contemporary discussion as well as a historical one. We'll move to the portion of the show that gets more into the myth and the retelling of this story. But I'm interested in whether La Malinche played any role in your upbringing as a story, as a figure? No, I'm from Puerto Rico originally. My dad's family is from Coahuila and from Eagle Pass, but no, she didn't. I learned about her in college. That's not the case, though, for my co-curator, Teresita Romo, who talks about growing up with an image of Malinche in her living room. What do you remember thinking when you learned about her in college? What was the class? It was a class on Aztec art. And my professor started at the conquest and moved backwards in time. That kind of centrism we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you've spent a lot of time thinking about La Malinche. What impression has she left on you? Resilience. Hope. We end the show very deliberately with two works. One by Gloria Osuna Perez. That's a portrait of her grandmother. As Malinche, this elderly, aged woman, the day that she had to cut her braids because her arthritis was too far gone. She could no longer wash and comb and braid her hair. And we, the other work is a triptych by Annie Lopez, where she has used found photographs that look like Fo- black and white photographs from your family album. Yes, they're taken. that was the impression I had when I saw them. Exactly, they're from the 1950s or 1960s. They're young girls, you know, maybe 18, 19 years old, posing playfully in front of their houses. But in each of the different photos, Annie sums up Malinche's life with eight words. Interpreter companion, sold as a slave, survivor. And that resonates. That's Annie connecting with you and saying, Malinche is your mom. She's your grandmother, your aunt. She's you. The voice of Victoria Lyle, who creates art of the, curates, that is, art of the ancient Americas for the Denver Art Museum. She's walking us through the life and legacy of La Malinche, the legendary indigenous girl who found herself at the heart of the Spanish and Aztec War. 500 years ago, a multilingual indigenous girl in Mexico was ripped from her family and handed to Spanish explorers as an interpreter. The history of La Malinche has largely been told by the colonizers, but the pieces in a new show at the Denver Art Museum offer a different take. This show is called Traitor, Survivor, Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche. Co-curator Victoria Lyall is walking us through this ancient yet thoroughly modern story. Victoria, I didn't expect to be looking at a calendar from February 1951. Explain what this is. So these Mexican calendars, they hold a special place in a lot of people's hearts. They became very popular in the 1950s and 60s, and they're still printed today. And they were handed out at every bakery, shoe store, hardware store, you name it. And they circulated widely both inside of Mexico and across the border. So these calendars often show images of a mythologized Aztec past, right? Or 
landscapes of the beautiful Mexico environment. We have fierce Aztec warriors and sexy Indian princesses. So the image that you're looking at right now shows this fantastic scene of Cortez and Malinche astride a white horse, followed by the Spanish entourage and the backgrounds or the volcanoes. What would have been the motivation in sharing that message, that view? Well, Elguera paints them in a very intimate moment, if you notice. Cortez has his arms around her waist, and she is playing with a crucifix around her neck. It's said that Jesus Elguera, the most famous of all calendar painters, used Maria Felix and Dolores de Rio as his models. These are actresses from the golden age of Mexican cinema, mm. and they were very mestiza looking. So one of the things we wanted visitors to notice is how indigeneity is being represented in these works and the kind of mythology that they are perpetuating. One of those myths is this idea of a romance between Cortez and Malinche, right? You've used this term mestizaje. Define it for us. Mestizaje is the mixing of races. So in our exhibition, we have a section titled Madre de Mestizaje, or the Mother of a Mixed Race. And it's a reference to this mythology that arises, especially in the 19th century when Mexico becomes independent from Spain, that Malinche is the indigenous mother and Cortés is the European father, sort of the Mexican Adam and Eve, if you will, of this new cosmic race, the Mestizo. And that story is widely told, widely held, and it's missing some key elements. One of the aspects of that story that becomes touted as this you know, legendary thing is their son, Martin, as the first Mestizo child. Now listen, the Spanish had been on the coast of Mexico for at least 36 months at this point. There's no way that this guy was the first Mestizo child. But that becomes really central to a Mexican origin story. Well, before we go, we ought to explore this really loaded term in the name of the show, traitor. Sure. Why don't you follow me into the next section of the exhibition, Traitor? You and I are standing at a display case that's roughly the size of a generous dining room table. And beneath the glass is textile. What does it depict and what does it tell us about this idea of La Malinche as traitor? So this is six feet of a hundred foot long textile that's fully embroidered and tells scene by scene by scene the history of the conquest of Mexico, starting from the moment that Cortez leaves Cuba until the burning of the temple. So we might think of this as a textile scroll yes, that has been unfurled, and yes. you've chosen a chapter. I have, exactly. The artist, Leslie Tillett, dedicates about two feet to an event known as the Massacre of Cholula, 
We know mostly about this event from the memoirs of Bernal Diaz El Castillo, who was a soldier that accompanied Cortez and wrote his memoirs about 40 years, you know, in his retirement, mm -hmm. if you will. And he tells that the Spanish arrive in the city of Cholula, this really important, sacred town in Mexico at the time, and that she's a, Malinche is approached while on her own by an elderly woman who reads what's happening and says, Mijita, save yourself, go. The Cholultecas are going to attack. According to Bernal, she then turns around, tells Cortez, and Cortez massacres the residents of the town, particularly targeting women and children in the hopes of luring the Cholulteca warriors out of hiding. So the notion here is that an indigenous person is turning on indigenous people. Exactly. But this is Bernal Diaz del Castillo who's telling the story. Can he, we trust the storyteller? No, he's a complete <laughs> fantasist. And he loves Malinche. He wants to paint her in the best possible light. We have no way of knowing factually what happened. And he would have wanted to paint that in a Spanish light. Exactly. A Spanish heroic light. Exactly. But presumably this story gains purchase and it becomes the traitor side right. of Malinche. And I think about this term Malinchista, which becomes almost an epithet. Yes, in fact, it's a very common slur used to refer to someone who prefers the foreign or the other to their own. In the vernacular, it can also mean somebody who prefers whiteness over brownness, for example. It was a term that was used to refer in the Chicano community to women who subverted the expectations of their community. So think about somebody who in the 1960s or 70s chose to not get married, not have children, mm. go on to graduate school, identified as queer, fell in love with a white man. They were all called malinches. And this negative perception betraying your own community, that's where really it found root. The thread of the Chicano movement really seems to connect this show to Colorado, to Metro Denver, where so much of the Chicano struggle for equal education, for humane treatment by police, unfurled. I think one of the things that has really resonated with the community, and one of the reasons I really wanted to bring this particular project to Denver, was Denver's role in the Chicano movement. I mean, we're really proud to have a piece by Emmanuel Martinez in the show, right? He creates the logo, the mestizo face for the Chicano movement. And we all know that it was from here in March 1968 that the Plan de Atzlan is launched. It's seminal right. in coalescing the movement. The Plan de Atzlan essentially serves as the manifesto the public manifesto of the Chicano movement, and it's launched here from Denver and authored, I think, in part by Corky Gonzalez, mm. who is a Denver native. So we know that the city and the state has had a long history with Mexico and with Mexican-American relations, and it's been really gratifying for me. I didn't know how the show was going to be received, to be honest, mm. but to have so many moving moments where... 
people will say, this is the first time I see myself in the gallery. And that makes me want to cry. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming. Victoria Lyall is co-curator of Trader Survivor Icon, The Legacy of La Malinche. It runs through May 8th at the Denver Art Museum. Finally today, the latest album from 76-year-old singer-songwriter Neil Young. It's called Barn. Looking through a wavy glass window In this old place by the lake In the colors of the falling leaves I see nature makes no mistake In the water as it ripples in the wind There's a message I see of what's to come In the honkers flying low above the waves That's the reason this song is sung The album's title comes from where it was recorded. During the pandemic, Young and his longtime band Crazy Horse secluded themselves in a 19th century barn on a ranch near his home in San Miguel County, Colorado. In an interview with NPR, Young described the recording space. The way I get to the barn, I walk for a couple of miles through some aspen forest and then down past an old windmill and a couple of lakes with my two dogs. And then I'm halfway there and I walk through a great valley with uh, the Rockies behind me. And it's a beautiful old barn. It's restored to exactly the way it was when it was built in like 1850, 1860 or something. And uh, it's a, a historic place with a great vibe. It's the perfect acoustic space because of the logs. There's no flat surfaces. The barn has a sound, but it's not an echo. It's like you're inside of a, you're being held inside something that is very friendly. Gonna sing an old song to you right now, one that you heard before. Might be a window to your soul. Neil Young and Crazy Horse with Welcome Back, recorded in an old barn near Young's home outside Telluride. His 41st studio album, titled Barn, is out now. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our stable of producers. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.